Episode 80 of UConn 360. That's the only podcast known to science that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. Coming to you from the three corners of Connecticut and one corner of New York, we are the UConn 360 Merry Band. My name is Tom Breen. I'm your facilitator of sorts. Joining me, as always, are my colleagues Tyler Silverio. Tyler, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Julie Bartuka. Hey, how's it going? It's going good. And the Mansfield Center Bureau, Ken Best. It's nice and sunny out today. The wind has stopped blowing and the snow is basically gone. So we're having a good time today. Feels like maybe spring is on the horizon, but as someone said on Twitter the other day, in the Northeast, March is a false idol. Yes, it's been very cold. It has been very cold. We've got a lot of interesting stuff for our listeners this week, as we always do. I'm not, it's not like I'm saying normally it's garbage, but it, you picked a good week to listen. No, that's not what I'm saying. But, uh, some big news about the university, uh, big news about an alum, big news about our students. Why don't we jump into that? Julie, we've got a big number to share with us. A big number. More than 38,000 students have applied so far to join UConn's class of 2025, which sounds very futuristic still, even though we're here in 2021. <laughs> That's a record high, despite the unpredictability that the COVID pandemic has created in higher ed worldwide. The university has started formally notifying applicants by mail who have been accepted as first-year students at stores. For stores, the university received a record number of more than 36,000 applicants, and then the other about 2,000 are from those who want to go to a regional campus, and many more of those are expected in the coming months because those deadlines are a little bit later. The applicant pool is the largest yet, and it's also the most diverse in terms of students' racial and ethnic backgrounds, with about 45% of UConn stores applicants identifying as members of minority populations. And interest from Connecticut students was also very strong, with applicants from all of Connecticut's 169 towns and others throughout the U.S. and other nations. Very nice. That's really good to see, especially given, you know, everything that's happening in the world. Everything. And hopefully these kids can have some more normal college experience. We'll see how that goes. And you never know. One of these students may one day grow up to be, for example, a cabinet official. <laughs> Just like another UConn alumnus who Ken is going to tell us about. Yes. Connecticut's Education Commissioner, Miguel Cardona, was confirmed last week by the United States Senate to become Secretary of Education for President Joe Biden. He earned his master's sixth-year diploma and doctoral degree from the NEAC School of Education, where he also served as an adjunct professor. Secretary Cardona, however, is not the first Husky to serve in a cabinet position. The late Charles Zwick, an economist who did his undergraduate and master's work in agricultural economics in the early 1950s, served as director of the U.S. Office of Management and Budget under President Lyndon B. Johnson. And another Husky has also returned to the White House to serve in the Biden administration. Brett McGurk is a special presidential envoy and National Security Council coordinator for the Middle East and North Africa. He previously served in senior national security positions under both Republican and Democratic presidents. He's also a former clerk to Supreme Court Justice William Rehnquist, and I remember we wrote about that when I was editing Yukon Magazine. Very nice. Very uh, accomplished Huskies out there. Congratulations to both of them. Ken, that's actually pretty good. Since we're talking about affairs of state matters of national import, that's a pretty good segue 
into the interview you've got for us this week. Is that right? Yes. Stu Rothenberg earned his doctoral degree in political science at UConn. And after teaching at Bucknell University and the Catholic University of America, he established a reputation as one of the most respected political analysts in Washington uh, with his nonpartisan political newsletter, the Rothenberg Political Report, which covered campaigns for Congress, gubernatorial, and presidential politics. Today, he is the senior editor at Inside Elections with Nathan L. Gonzalez, and a columnist for the congressional newsletter Roll Call, as well as a frequent analyst for the PBS NewsHour and other broadcast media. Stu and I have talked about election politics for UConn Magazine and UConn Today. This is our fifth presidential election cycle that, we, that we've done this for. So we uh, decided to catch up last week to talk about the political environment in Washington following the election of President Joe Biden and the partisan divide in politics today. You talk about in your columns the fact that there is still this divide. In November, right after the election, you said the election solved nothing. We've had divides before. You pointed out still the nature and the depth of of the divide. That's dangerous. Could you elaborate on that? The situation deteriorated initially, deteriorated, I would say, in the early to mid-90s with the Clintons and the whole kind of um, questions surrounding their integrity. And some of the questions were reasonable. Some of the questions were unreasonable. But the parties kind of started dividing along party lines there. And obviously, you had an impeachment, not a conviction. We had an impeachment there. And that was kind of the step down. And the Internet was was coming on then. And cable news was taking over. And there was more of a anger and bitterness and distrust. Trust and distrust is a huge factor in American politics, in any politics. I mean, if you don't trust your opponent, you're going to resort to extra legal or extra normal means. So that's where trust first deteriorated. And now we've been going through a period of intense suspicion on the part of many in the, in the electorate. We have people who um, for years felt that politicians were promising something and then never delivered it. So they were frustrated out of that. And that takes us up to Donald Trump and uh, uh, an electorate where almost half, say 46 percent of the electorate is angry. Again, doesn't trust the opposition, even with a greater intensity than during the Clinton years. And so kind of the way people get their information, the internet, Hannity, Cuomo, and the like, it has produced a a very fragile political system. You know, we saw what happened on January 6th. There are no signs of great willingness to compromise. Joe Biden campaigned as a compromiser, as a kind of a figure from the past who, you know, knew the Senate and knew senators and could get them to work together. It's clearly really hard to do that. You also have observed the divide in the Republican Party, which has happened before, but you predicted earlier this year, and I don't know whether that's changed anything since observing the CPAC meeting recently, uh, that the fracture could heal pretty quickly. You, You point out that the Republicans will come together against Taxes, regulation, global climate change, voting rights issues, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that there's also this difference in the, on the Democratic side between the extremes of the progressives on e- on either side, because the progressives 
want it their way or not at all. There's a lot there to unpack. Of Let me start with the Republican side and then move to the Democratic side. I don't believe, and I'm writing now, that there is not a, I told a reporter earlier today that, I, in my view, there is not a civil war because the civil war requires two sides with some clout and, and uh, it doesn't have to be equal support or equal ammunition, but they have to and there has to be some sort of a serious fight. I think the Republican Party is Trump's party. And there are some Republicans who are uncomfortable with that, many of whom have left, some of whom are still in the party, like Adam Kinziger of Illinois, a House member. You have former members uh, like uh, Charlie Dent in uh, Pennsylvania, Bethlehem, uh, Allentown area. So, you know, there are some Republicans still on the hill, but mostly off off the hill, who are angry and upset and pulling their hair out at Donald Trump. But it really is his party. I don't believe that there was what I would call a kind of a, a traditional f- fracture. There were people who are unhappy with how the party has changed. And they are complaining and they're looking for a standard bearer and they're hoping to have uh, to, to be able to organize, but they've got to show something because the grassroots is still the president's party. It's really amazing. A man who was so controversial, Donald Trump, so controversial, and in some ways so different than the old Republican Party. By the old Republican Party, I'm talking about the party of George H.W. Bush, even George W. Bush, Bob Dole, Mitt Romney. That was the old Republican Party. And he's so different. To some extent, it's issues, but but to a larger extent, it's style and his position on cultural issues, where the Republicans used to be about bringing people in and having them enjoy the benefits of the United States and become the melting pot, the Trump wing of the party. See that? I just said the Trump wing of the party. <laughs> that is the only wing of the party, the Trump, the Trump, the dominant wing of the party, the only wing of the party culturally seems very different, that they're hesitant to embrace those those folks. I don't think there has been a split. There have been defections. There will continue to be defections to the extent that the president goes after Adam Kinzinger and Mitt Romney and Mitch McConnell and Nikki Haley, anybody who said anything the least bit negative. Nikki Haley has criticized the president and then realized, whoops, I went too far and came back and talked about what a great speech he he gave at uh, CPAC. And there could be more defections. The Republican voters in the suburbs, upscale, college-educated, white women and men who used to vote Republican simply on taxes and the size of government and they didn't like big labor and the like, I think those people may continue to peel off uh, toward the Democrats. On the other side, the election masked a huge division on the Democratic side. And it was easy for all the Democrats from Elon Omar and AOC to uh, Joe Manchin and uh, Nancy Pelosi and pick who you want, Doug Jones of Alabama, who lost the Senate race. But it was easy for all those people to line up against the Republican Party of Donald Trump. When you have Joe Biden in the White House, suddenly Joe Biden becomes the top issue. Joe Biden becomes the person who uh, sets the agenda. When he makes a comment, if it's controversial, it gets on the news, not 
the not Kevin McCarthy, the Republican minority leader in the House. I'm a few cycles ago, the Republicans ran against Nancy Pelosi as if she was somehow comparable to Donald Trump in power and influence. And there are people who who react to her viscerally, just as they, they react to Trump viscerally. But when you have a president like Donald Trump, the president is always the issue. And even a president like Joe Biden, the president is always the issue. I mean, we used to get presidential honeymoons of six months to a year, and now it's probably six hours to a, a week. But the Democratic division is clear, Ilan Omar and the AOC, but there are others, Rokana of California. There are kind of progressives in the Senate who want to do it with the filibuster. Connecticut's Senator uh, Murphy has been a critic of the filibuster. So there is the kind of progressive wing of the party. At some point, they're starting to get starting to show some worry with the Biden strategy and agenda in the process. And they don't want to compromise on the minimum wage. In some respects, good for Democrats if pre- former President Trump becomes a major figure once again and he's tweeting and he's talking and he's giving speeches because he's such a controversial figure. It could keep the Democrats united. But the Democrats have a significant split between the progressives and the establishment Democrats. And let's be very clear. The establishment Democrats are very liberal. It's not like they're conservative. It's just that they have a different view of process and how government works, the importance of negotiating with the other side. And so there is a deep division in the Democratic Party, too. It's starting to emerge now, and it could get get bigger. Uh, There's no question about it, though. Later it goes, the more progressives will say, well, gee, he didn't deliver on this he being Biden, didn't deliver on one or two or three or four or five. Uh, And at some point, they'll get really angry. And there could be a confrontation between the two elements of the Democratic Party. There's a case in front of the Supreme Court or coming up to the Supreme Court on voting rights uh, issues. But also, uh, there's been something like uh, more than 100 bills introduced in in state houses around the country. Is there any sense yet where that's going to be going based on your conversations with people around the country? Given this court, you can't assume that they are going to go out of their way to protect uh, voting rights the way other courts have, the way the Warren court did, or Justice Brennan and Warren or Thurgood Marshall and the like. There is deep concern on the Democratic side about just making it more difficult for people to vote. So that's the general sense. Congress, the Republicans don't seem interested in acting. And at the state level, to the contrary, as you point out, the Republican legislators and governors seem to have concluded that one of the lessons they learned is too many damn people voted last time. And they're taking steps to to make it more difficult for people to vote. Then obviously this will go through the courts and could go through, we'll go through state legislatures, Congress and the like, but it's a problem for Democrats. There are things that offset that which is demographic changes in the country where the country is, has more people of color and kind of more diversity and, and the younger generation is more progressive. That offsets some of the legislative changes, but not all of them in every state. Is there a question that you don't get that you think people should be asking you about what's going on these days? I think they should be concerned with the fundamental strength of the democracy. We have, a little, we have a little break here of four years with Joe Biden. In two years, the Republicans may well take over the House and the Senate. You know, if history is any guide, midterm elections, the president's party loses. 
the Democrats only have a five seat majority in the House. The Senate is split evenly. One of those seats that was was won in Georgia last time is up next year. I think that democracy is very fragile. I'm not usually a uh, chicken little sky is falling person, but I, you know, I wonder, can we take another four years if norms are violated? This has nothing to do with matters of public policy of oil drilling or tax level of taxes or, or how much spending we do on the children's health or that those are all separate issues. I always figure people are, have the right to decide for themselves how they think about and what how they feel about matters of public policy. Depending, everybody comes from a different kind of religious experience or no religious experience. Where have a grew up in a different uh, economic situation. All those things go into people making decision. But for me, the process is really important. Keeping it fair and honest. I'm just concerned that. Over the past four years, a lot of the rules of the road have been violated, and uh, I worry that in, in four or six or eight years, will we be back to uh, a, a, an environment that is uh, kind of dangerous for democracy and for limited government and for checks and balances and for the, and for the media, uh, which all of which are necessary and are crucial institutions for our future. Well, as always, it's good to talk with Stu. He is highly respected. He's the he's the go-to guy for a lot of news reporters and actually foreign embassies, as well as with his colleague, Charlie Cook, for the Cook uh, Report, to find out what's really going on in the United States. And as always, he's got a keen eye watching the postseason for basketball because he's a huge UConn basketball fan. And he's watching the Huskies, uh, men and the women, and we talked a little bit about that as well. As he should be, as, as all UConn grads should be, big fans of, of both programs. Absolutely. Well, you know, I think the theme of this show could be alums doing interesting things, because Julie, in the piece you're going to present to us, there's an alum with an interesting story to tell. Is that right? Yes, very interesting things. And they also talk about the Biden administration. So we've got quite a theme going on in this episode. This is another installment of the Brave Space series that we've been presenting, and it's a conversation between political science professor Christine Sylvester and 2018 PhD graduate Timothy Bussey. Sylvester advised Bussey as they completed their political science dissertation titled Lavender Security Threats, Understanding the Histories of Discrimination Against LGBT Persons in the American Military and Intelligence Community. Bussey grew up in a military family near the Fort Benning Army Base in Georgia. After briefly considering enrolling in a military college, they attended a smaller state university in their hometown and then spent time abroad at the University of Oxford. Their undergraduate advisor was a UConn alum and also shared information with Bussey about UConn's Rainbow Center. Bussey was impressed by the support provided to the LGBTQ community in stores and thought UConn would be the perfect fit for postgraduate studies. Quickly getting involved at the Rainbow Center, Bussey met many friends and mentors, worked as an intern, facilitated the graduate and postdoctoral fellow group, and later ran the Out to Lunch lecture series. The work proved to them that they wanted to pursue a career in student services rather than go the tenure-track route. Today, Bussey is Associate Director of the Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Kenyon College in Ohio, where they have racked up an impressive array of DEI accomplishments, particularly in the LGBTQIA inclusion space. They were asked to write the newest edition of Freedom to Serve, the Definitive Guide to LGBTQ Military Service, which the Biden 
transition team formally requested ahead of the inauguration. Professor Sylvester asked Bussey to discuss what they were most proud of since earning their doctoral degree. One of my more recent ones that I'm very proud of is definitely this guidebook, Freedom to Serve, the Definitive Guide to LGBTQ Military Service. It is a publication by the Modern Military Association of America, which is a newer organization. They were formed from a merger of a variety of organizations that were leading the fight to have Don't Ask, Don't Tell repealed back in 2010. This is really the leading national organization for LGBTQ plus service members and veterans. And they approached me about authoring the third edition of their Freedom to Serve guidebook, the resource that's distributed nationally to LGBTQ plus folks in the military and veteran community. I was, first of all, just honored to be asked and that they were aware of my work and super thrilled to do it. It was a very substantial project, as one might imagine. The last time their guidebook had been published was early 2015, right before trans-inclusive policies were added under the Obama administration. It was a pretty substantial body of work and a really wonderful guidebook that existed, but obviously a lot of things had happened in that six-year period since the second edition was published. I was really honored, first of all, to be able to write something that I knew would be such a resource for so many people across the country. And when I heard the news that the Biden transition team had officially requested an advanced copy, that was really surreal. I'm really proud to have come out as trans and non-binary during the pandemic. For me, at least, definitely made me stop and stay still for long enough to sit with things. Gender is a really interesting concept that I Despite having done so many things with LGBTQ plus students, having taught women's gender and sexuality studies for several years, I'd never really spent a lot of time exploring my own gender identity in a really significant way. And that was something I was starting to do more as soon as COVID made me stop bouncing from thing to thing. That sort of happened a lot quicker than I was expecting. It was something that was really, really helpful not to put a silver lining uh, around all of the challenges that have come with COVID. But that was something that I did do during the pandemic and that I'm proud to have done. You can't see me, but I'm smiling ear to ear listening to you talk about it. Now I want to take you back to your time for a minute at UConn. In light of your time now at Kenyon, what would you say that the University of Connecticut is doing well And what do you think it could do better? When I was at UConn, I had so much support from so many people. Flo King was extremely helpful with navigating the transition into a student service-facing role. Obviously, Sherry Zane, now the director of the Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies Program. We're very proud of that promotion. But Sherry Zane was immensely helpful um, and supportive. And, you know, frankly, I've told you this several times, Christine, but just so it's like officially recorded somewhere, I honestly don't think I would have been able to do half of the things or even potentially finish my dissertation without your support and without Sherry's support. So I really can't thank you two enough. And thinking of the broader Yukon community, there are definitely folks that are there supporting LGBTQ plus students, undergrad and grad. And I think that there is a really strong basis and and set of infrastructure around 
supporting LGBTQ plus students across the campus community. But I would suggest making more intentional collaborations with community organizations and doing that work in an even more intentional way. I definitely saw some of that work starting to happen. The Rainbow Center was starting to do that work more recently. I don't think this is necessarily just a UConn thing. I think this is really every college that's working to support LGBTQ plus students, but making sure that your resources are as front facing as possible. That was one thing that I really worked very intentionally, very hard on at Kenyon to make sure that particularly the resources for things like HIV prevention on campus and supporting trans students on campus were very accessible, mm-hmm. that they weren't hidden on your website, that they were very intentionally spelled out there and working from the presumption that you know there are going to be students that need those that are never going to come talk to you about them. Things that are going well, the fact that WGSS as a program exists is critically, critically important. And I would say one area for improvement is greater university support, particularly from areas like the Office of the Provost for WGSS. The fact that the program doesn't have any faculty members who are specifically just in WGSS for a tenure-track position is surprising, frankly, for a a university the size of UConn. One other area where there are some really wonderful things happening is the increased investment of infrastructure for the various campuses of UConn. During my time at UConn, I had the pleasure of teaching at the Hartford campus and the Waterbury campus for multiple semesters. And I really, really enjoyed being able to have an impact on those campuses and being able to interact with students that that are studying on those campuses. Seeing the physical infrastructure very much being there and really passionate people working to support students are definitely on those campuses. But when I think of some of the other resources that the general Yukon stores student enjoys, some of those resources don't exist on the branch campuses in the same way. Like there's not a rainbow center at Yukon Waterbury. Certainly things will look different for a branch campus, but I think being more intentional about the diversity and inclusion work, particularly around student support services on the branch campuses is a major area for improvement. And I think that that is something that will just grow the university community and the support that the students enjoy in so many really wonderful levels. My final question is really a similar question about doing well or not doing well with regard to the new administration in Washington of Joe Biden. What is the Biden administration doing well at the start and what issues would you advise it to take up? This is a really exciting question. Thinking of things that are going well, certainly some of the earliest executive orders, I think this one that I'm thinking of is actually a day one executive order, intentionally saying we are going to enforce the decision relating to LGBTQ plus inclusion in civil rights law regarding workplace law. And at the same time, we're also directing every agency head to look at ways in which that decision will impact the work that their agency is doing. That was so, so impactful. But one of the challenges that we've seen was just because you have an executive order, that can be pretty easily undone by an incoming administration. That's exactly what we saw with the Trump administration and trans inclusion in the military. I think the executive order is something we applaud, but we also want to make sure that we have things codified beyond agency policy, agency guidance, and executive orders. One general thing that I think the Biden administration could continue to do and do more impactfully 
is really have an active push for the Equality Act. It actually passed the House last session, and that was the first time ever that it was able to come to a vote and pass, and it was not considered in the Senate. The Equality Act is this comprehensive piece of federal legislation that would essentially make sure that sexuality and gender identity are included in existing civil rights law. So areas like the Fair Housing Act, areas of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, so protecting folks in terms of discrimination in public accommodations, thinking about health care policy, it would add all these specific protections into all of these various areas of existing civil rights law. In terms of military policy, one thing that came to light in the past year is that the military and the Pentagon and the Department of Defense as a whole doesn't necessarily do a great job with tracking the healthcare outcomes of LGBTQ plus vets. And they don't necessarily have a way to track health disparities that are affecting LGBTQ plus veterans. It's not consistent how they're providing services. That is something that I think the, the Biden administration can certainly do better and will have a substantial impact moving forward. Also thinking on the military track, the way that the trans-inclusive policies under the Obama administration were crafted, they had a very binary view um, of gender. So they didn't actually do much in terms of non-binary inclusion in the military. And then at risk of getting too detailed on military policy, I have two other general recommendations, just in case anyone from the Biden administration is listening to this podcast, which is a real reality considering the Secretary of Education is also a UConn alum. So that's exciting. But in thinking of our new Secretary of Education and the connection to UConn, and in the hopes that, that he might be listening to this, one definite area for improvement at the DOE would be very clear guidance in regards to Title IX and trans inclusion. The previous Secretary of Education, Secretary Betsy DeVos, did a lot of things with Title IX guidance beyond just LGBTQ plus inclusion. And frankly, it has led to a lot of challenges. Thinking about the trans piece for a moment, having a really clear set of guiding principles via an updated Dear Colleague letter that specifically indicates the ways in which Title IX does protect the rights of our trans students, I think is hugely, hugely important and has a direct impact on the lives of so many students across the country and not just college and university students, but K through 12 students too. And then my last one, I think that the Biden administration could do more impactful work at the Department of State. The State Department is one of these places where we can, as members of the trans community, get updated documentation that can be really, really helpful in so many levels of people's personal lives. So having federal documentation by way of a passport that accurately reflects people's gender identity and has the correct gender marker. Currently, the Department of State still has the Obama-era policies back when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State. She worked to update the trans-specific guidance to make it so trans folks could have a correctly gendered passport. And currently, the policy only allows for a binary transition. So someone who is assigned male at birth and follows this procedure can get a correctly gendered passport, but they don't have a non-binary gender marker yet. And so I would say that that is going to be the next step for an LGBTQ plus inclusive and specifically a trans inclusive Department of State. That is definitely an area where I think the Biden administration will go, but I would definitely recommend that they go on the chance that they're listening to this and hoping for advice from Dr. Timothy Bussey. <laughs> 
There will be a slightly different version of that Q&A in the next issue of Yukon Magazine, which comes out in June. I had to cut a lot for time, but Bussy has their hands in so many projects that bring community together and provide resources for people in the LGBTQ plus community in Ohio and beyond. And they also told us that they recently submitted a book proposal to expand their dissertation into a book. So keep an eye out for that. Very nice. And thanks, again, for uh, contributing that uh, as part of the Brave Space series. Good stuff. Well, thanks to Professor Sylvester for conducting that interview for us. That was great. Yeah. Our alumni theme is, is over now because uh, my uh, historical item has nothing to do with alum. I guess it does a little bit, but it's not about a particular alum. That's okay. Last week, you know, we talked about the um, free speech controversy in 1935, and I explicitly said I, I wanted to do something that was so far in the past no one would get mad about it. <laughs> and someone on Twitter challenged. Yeah, I know. Someone on Twitter challenged me to do something more recent, and uh, I love a challenge, especially Let one get mad about it. Yeah, especially one uh, you know made via Twitter. So I wanted to talk about something from my student days at UConn. So we're going back to the 1870s. No, um, <laughs> of course the Pfizer company has been very much in the news all over the world lately, and their vaccine in particular. And back in 1999, there was the exciting prospect of Pfizer establishing what they called a Center for Excellence in Animal Vaccine Research right here at UConn. This would have been a $35 million, 90,000 square foot facility with a mixed office and research space in which UConn faculty members would work side by side with Pfizer researchers, pretty similar to what the uh, UConn Tech Park has become and also uh, Bioscience Connecticut. But this was back in the very distant 1990s. Uh, when dinosaurs roamed the earth, uh, there was a there was one slight problem with this plan. The site for the facility was Horse Barn Hill. Um, so, if you know anything about Yukon, and if you're listening to this, presumably you do, uh, Horse Barn Hill is. They were going to throw a giant building on Horse Barn Hill. That was the plan, and uh, your your reaction to that demonstrates pretty much how a lot of people, not just uh, at Yukon but also in Mansfield, felt about it. There was considerable disagreement about this. There were a lot of town meetings about it that got pretty tense. There was you know, some threats of violence at one of the town meetings. <laughs> Casual threats of violence. <laughs> Casual threats of violence. Kind of a, you know, Yankee tradition here. There were lots of studies, attempts uh, by people in town to suggest other sites. The university, though, insisted this was the best particular site. They were with Pfizer on this. A group called the Coalition to Save Horse Barn Hill started... And they uh, attended the April 1999 meeting of the Board of Trustees. I remember this meeting where there were people brought in uh, bongo drums. They brought in life-size puppets and horse costumes, like pantomime horse costumes. <laughs> <laughs> Two-person horse costumes. That was before John Bell got here, too. That's right. That, yeah, that's right. Who was the president at this time? This was Phil Austin. Austin. Wow. Um, during his time. When you started, I thought this was going to be an animal rights controversy. This is this is very surprising. No, yeah, this is a hill rights controversy, I guess. <laughs> well, come on. Like, no, I, no, I know I'm... I know that, like, back in the, the, the very distant 1990s, but I was going to say, you know, that part of the uh, 20th century, I feel like was a little more urban renewal happening, things... It was more about, like, let's build lots of buildings and not so much conservation of beautiful spaces. So I could see this being, you know, not thought of as crazy at first by some who wanted all the money from Pfizer. <laughs> Remember, that was also the beginning of the Yukon 2000 mm -hmm. program when building was going to be happening big time. You know, it's interesting. Pe people, I think, would look at this now and say, why didn't they just build it where the tech park is? I mean, that was... There was no road up there back then. It was woods. Yeah, yeah. it was woods. You would ha really have to. Um, but we have acres and acres and acres and acres. We do. 
And there was a trade-off involved, and people recognize that. This is a, an interesting quote from um, Quentin Kessel, who was a physics professor at the time and whose father had been the head of the English department when uh, uh, Albert Jorgensen was president. At the board of trustees meeting with the horses and the, the puppets, he said, and he was against building the, the uh, Pfizer facility, but he said, we will either lose the hillside or lose Pfizer. And that turned out to be prophetic because uh, after some lawsuits were filed, uh, Pfizer said, you know, we, we do research, we don't do litigation, and they, they pulled out of the, the plan. Uh, yeah. Important to know they didn't pull out of UConn. Just want to say that um, shortly after this, Pfizer established the School of Pharmacy's first endowed chair with a gift of $2 million, and they've been uh, active in other ways, too. So there's still a, a Pfizer link with UConn. They did move this facility to uh, Terre Haute, Indiana, by the way, so the facility did get built. And I remember this at the time, and this was a really, really contentious issue. I mean, it's, you know, looking back at the, you know, the horse costumes and puppets now, it, you know, it is a little funny, but <laughs> this damaged friendships. People were really, wow, because it wasn't just seen as like, um, you know, the, the, this big corporation coming in from outside that this was going to be beneficial to UConn and also to Mansfield because Mansfield would have gotten property tax money for the facility. Where specifically on Horseburn Hill were they going to put this? Do you know? I forget exactly. They said it, it would be visible from 195, but they were trying to find a way to make it less visible. But I mean, we're talking about a 35,000 square foot That's a big, research yeah. facility. Yeah, I mean, you, it would have been unmistakable. Horse Barn Hill is, in fairness, is large. It is. I mean, there are probably places on like the backside that yeah. you could. But why would you? Why? Why? Well, Pete Moranis would have been very upset because that's where he takes people to pose with the store's UConn skyline behind them. So you can see Campbell Pavilion yeah, and, and everything else on the campus. And so he would have to find a new place to take portraits. For listeners, Pete Moranis is the university photographer. He's not just some <laughs> weird guy who takes people out to Horse Barn Hill. <laughs> Taking people to post. I just want to be clear that we're not, to, you know. Tyler, did Horse Barn Hill play any role in you liking UConn as a place to go? Not as much as like other people I'd say. I've only been there twice, actually. Um, I just never got around to going with friends or anything. Um, but when I have gone, it, it's been beautiful. It's so pretty. Yeah, I, I wish I went there more. <laughs> I know. You didn't know you were going to lose your opportunity. Well, had they built the ski slopes like they wanted to, <laughs> that, that wouldn't have been an issue. Yeah, the last time I went was like literally right before we were sent home. Aww. So we went as like a last chance to go, but uh, I'd love to see it again. Yeah, I just can't imagine like campus without that beautiful opening vista as you drive in yeah it's nope. it's such a, an iconic part of yukon i don't think there's ever a chance there'll be some kind of major development now but at the time it was a very real prospect so uh i think that we covered it even-handedly but if you uh are <laughs> on either side of this and are mad at me if you're still in your pantomime horse costume <laughs> and you're furious just feel free to uh message julie on twitter and no. uh, <laughs> we know what happens when people bring me into it <laughs> sucker <laughs> um, well, that's all we have for this week hope you enjoyed it if you did you can follow us on twitter.com at yukon podcast or at main underscore old where uh we post you know old photos and and, and related things from yukon's history do you have any photos from the the horse costumes or anything i will find some photos from the horse costumes I, uh, that was covered by the new york times too so i might be able to uh, find some stuff in their archives but uh, yeah I'll, I'll post some stuff i think i have some old flyers from the the Coalition to Save Horse Barn Hill. 1999, cool. 98, that was a wild time at UConn. Arca I'm archives. Big flyer times. It was, it was the, <laughs> the, the spring yeah. weekend uh, got really out of control around then. And then we had this, and it was just uh, it was a wild time here. Tyler, is there anything uh, you would like to direct people's attention to? 
Um, as usual, I post to at UConn FASA on Instagram. That's the Philippine American Student Association at UConn. Very nice. Julie, anything uh, in your corner of the world? I'm on Twitter at Julie Bartuka. Please don't send me any fighting words <laughs> that you can direct at Tom. <laughs> Ken. Big news. The Good Music Show has moved its time slot because baseball has started. And rather than being preempted, we are now in prime time on Saturday night from 8 to 11 at 91.7 WHUS in stores. <laughs> However, the WHUS version of the podcast remains on Fridays at 11 o'clock in the morning. Very nice. All right. Thanks, everyone. Let's meet back here in two weeks.